and welcome to Make Language Great Again. Today it is my great pleasure to talk to Kevin Nathaniel. Kevin is a scholar of the house at Yale University. Following Yale, he devoted himself to the healing music of Africa, especially Mbira music. Kevin has worked with Alice Walker, Oprah Winfrey, Madonna, Niles Rogers, and many other people you probably know. Welcome, Kevin. Greetings. Thank you, Tessa. Oh, absolutely. My joy. Can you please talk about yourself a little bit? Well, I can. It's just that I feel like if I start talking about myself, I can go in a million different directions. So I'm just going to do uh, probably some uh, the main things I want people to know, and that's how to catch up on what I'm doing and the things I'm producing right now for the public. Afro Roots Tuesdays is a cultural music and art series that I produce every other week. And if you look up Afro Roots Tuesdays, You can find it in Google, and also you can find it on Facebook. It has a Facebook page. And uh, connect with Afro Roots Tuesdays to find out what's going on there, because we have a lot of great concerts. The concerts are all on Zoom lately because all the venues are closed, but the concerts are great. And then also this month in particular, I'm, gonna, I'm producing concerts for the New York Open Center. So if you go on the New York Open Center website, you'll see a list of concerts every Friday night for the next couple of weeks that I've produced for the Open Center. And that's for the public too, so you can check those out. And, uh, and then if anybody is interested in other things, they can contact me through um, any of those formats too, or through my website, which is kevinnathaniel.com, or Instagram, kevinnathanielhealing. Um, please check out some of those things because uh, there's a, just a whole lot of music and a whole lot of art that I've been able to produce for the public for the last couple of months. And it's, this is a particularly good time for that. Other than that, I've also been doing some underground creative work. And uh, I'm probably going to have to keep that more to uh, conversations when people uh, actually contact me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yes. you know, from, from my perspective, I was actually completely mesmerized by the fact that artistically and humanly have a certain purity about you that is extremely rare. And I think in this time it is, well, it is important and it is extremely powerful. And the way you try to educate people about the current situation and present different views, I think it is probably, it is so important. And as an artist, I see so many artists who are just going with the establishment narrative. And that to my heart is tragic. So what you are doing is true art, art in the innermost spiritual, the real meaning of it. And when, when I saw that, I, I had to talk to you and interview you because it's just the most important thing an artist do, can, probably, I'm thinking. And I wonder, can you please talk about your perspective in terms of when the pandemic started happening and like how events developed and how your perception was and what it was then, what it is now, your whole journey? Yes. Okay, um, that's very interesting because uh, speaking about what you said too is I, I do believe that art, any kind of art that you engage in, you, whether it be painting or music or dancing or any of the number of the disciplines, writing or whatever, the art forms tend to develop within you a sense of observing, a sense of keenly observing and asking what it is, what am I looking at? What am I listening to? What is this? And asking beyond the names that you see. You know, an artist, when they look at a tree, they want to say, what is that? 
They don't want to say that's a treat. They don't ever want to be satisfied with a name. They want to always ask, what is that? And then ask again, what is that? And never be satisfied with an answer. So that to me is the work of the artist. The work of the artist is not to be satisfied with an answer, to realize that there's always something else. There's always something else that hasn't been unveiled. It hasn't been explained. Uh, even when it seems like all has been explained, there's something that hasn't been explained. So I do feel like the artist's uh, time, work, their work is cut out for them in this time. Their work is cut out for them to be doing what they have, what they have been literally in school for, you know, because art is a school. As my friend said, some people go to school for art, but some people go to art for school. So, you know, some people go to school <laughs> for music, some people go to music for school. So whatever art form you're involved in, that is your school. That is your way of becoming educated, your way of finding a way to learn. And uh, because we all need a way to learn, we need a way to be able to improve on what we knew from yesterday. And uh, so this uh, event that's happened since uh, last February, March has been in a really has called on all of us to, to pull all that and to use everything we've had, use all of our senses to try to learn what's going on and try to see beyond the names that are being given to us and told to us. And uh, it began, I remember I was in Australia when this uh, whole, um, and I will use the word so-called pandemic. And the reason why I call it so-called pandemic is because even by the uh, conservative, conservative quotes that are right on the CDC website, there's a 99.5% survival rate. Uh, and that survival rate goes much higher the younger you are. And it comes down a little, may come down a little bit lower if you're very old, if you're in your 70s and older, that survival rate may not be that 99.5. But for the general public, that is about the mean number 99.5 or better. So if you really look at that number, you realize that that's about the odds for living anyway. I would say that, you know, I grew up in the inner cities of uh, Detroit and, you know, I relate to kids who grew up in the inner cities. 99.5% is not the odds that a child in the inner city has with police departments in the inner city. We do not have a 99.5% survival rate. I wish I could say that, but no one's calling that a pandemic. You know, no kid growing up in the city is faced with what's called a pandemic in relation to police departments in the cities. I've been to the best schools and performed amazingly well at all the schools, but I've been at the other end of a policeman's gun at least three times in my life and have survived that, have been thankful because the police was having a nice day that day and just decided they didn't want to pull the trigger. So, um, but nobody's calling that a pandemic. Nobody's saying that every African-American kid is suffering from a pandemic because their survival rate is something below 99.5. When you have 99.5%, that sounds like a really good immunity. That sounds like whatever it is that happened has developed a really good immunity. That may well be the definition of herd immunity, 99.5% survival rate. So that's why I'm, I'm going to say it's, we have to say that the, when we call, use that word pandemic, it's a name that we have to look beyond and keep asking again. Why are we using that word? Why are we using that word? It's uh, a so-called, so so so-called pandemic. When it began in February, March, I was in Australia. I was doing a, a project with the Fringe Festival in Australia, 
and uh, I was going to the stores. And I was never uh, had my head in the news or never had my head on TV. I was always, you know, out in nature as much as I can. I still am. And uh, so I just would, you know, be out in nature, listening to the birds while I was in Australia and then doing this uh, theater piece on some days of the week. And uh, and then walking in this huge park. And uh, then I'd take this long walk to the grocery store. And the first thing that I noticed was that at the, sometime around, you know, early March, I was going to the grocery store and there was no toilet paper in the store. And I was wondering, well, why is all the toilet paper gone? You know, it just seems so strange to me. So I would, uh, I began to ask around, you know, some of my friends, what's going on? You know, why is there? And they said, well, something's happening. You know, there's something that's happening and people are afraid of some big uh, illness or something, uh, some, some big pandemic. And so they're buying up all the toilet paper, you know, and I was like, that doesn't make any sense. You know, why are people buying, buying the toilet? It seems like people would be buying, you know, vitamin C or something that would run out of stock, you know, but toilet paper, that just didn't make sense. So as that was the first part of it that hit me as strange, but everybody was fine. We were living our normal lives. And, uh, and then I would notice sometimes when I went to that same store, certain foods would be just disappeared. You know, people had bought it all up. And, uh, and again, I was wondering why are these, you know, foods just disappearing off the shelf? And uh, so uh, then it got to the point where the last few days before, you know, I was the last few days before I left back to the United States, I, I came back to the United States on March 16th of 2020. And so the, the last few days I was hearing about this and I was hearing that they were shutting down things in the United States and they were getting rid of restrict travel. And, you know, supposedly all these people were going to the hospital and I was looking around me. I was in Australia and believe me, nobody was falling ill around me. Nobody was suffering from anything. I didn't see anything. So as an artist, you know, one of the things you develop is this skepticism. You know, you you develop the skepticism, always saying, you know, what is this? You know, what are people talking about? Let me see it. I can't, I can't buy it if I can't see it. I can't jump on the bandwagon if, if, if I can't somehow or another see this and confirm to myself that what they're saying is true. So Believe me, everything was fine in Australia. Um, everybody was living their lives. And I kept hearing about concerts being canceled for the last few days. Oh, this concert, they canceled this concert. And I'm like, why are they canceling the concert? Well, they don't want anybody to get some contagious thing, you know. And uh, and so all these artists were losing huge amounts of money and, and venues were losing huge amounts of money. They sold millions of dollars worth of tickets that they were being had to return the money back to the people. And uh, luckily the venue I was at managed to keep playing and we kept doing our uh, creative piece until the very last day, which was March 15th. And, uh, and then March 16th, I got on a plane and came back to the United States. And there was all this concern on the plane, you know, um, everybody was seemed to be afraid of something. And uh, at the point I didn't know what it was, but I, thought that, you know, there was, I'd heard that there was some respiratory illness or whatever. So everybody was afraid, you know, of that. And when I'm on the plane, I'm on the plane on March 16th, I'm hearing the fear in people's conversations. 
And I'm noticing that, you know, there are people on the plane that are sneezing and coughing and everybody's afraid. Anybody sneezing or coughing, everybody's afraid. You know, of course, I wasn't afraid. I wasn't afraid of anybody sneezing or coughing because something about this whole thing was just telling me that this was not uh, something to be afraid of and that I would, I should only press a panic button if I was already over the edge, if I was already, you know, on my deathbed, I might press a panic button. But other than that, I would not press a panic button. So uh, we were on this long plane ride coming from Australia. It's like some, what, 20-hour plane ride. And, uh, and after, I just slept on it, you know, but I could, I could hear there was anxious commotion, concern that people were worried about something. And I got back to the United States. I came into the West Coast, and then we had to fly over to, from the West Coast into New York. And, uh, and when I got to New York, I began to hear about all these different things and about all these closings, things being closed, everything being shut down, everything being on lockdown. Well, again, when I came back to my neighborhood, everybody was living. Everybody was fine. They were not, they were, nobody was falling out, passing out on the street. No, I didn't see any bodies in the street. In fact, everybody was fine. So, uh, but when I went to the grocery store, because everything was on lockdown, because all these jobs had been, had been put to an end and everybody put on furlough and everybody put on leave, suddenly in this grocery store, in a community of people that probably prided themselves on working two or three jobs, a lot of them. I'm going to the grocery store at night and I'm finding grown men in the grocery store begging for money. And this is something I'd never seen before. And it became clear to me then that this was the problem because I wasn't seeing bodies in the street, but I was seeing able-bodied men begging in the street because they didn't have their jobs. And I realized that if anybody wanted to stay healthy in this time period, it was economic strength that was going to bring people health. If their economy was strong, if they had the ability to move where they need to, get what they need to, have access to what they need to, and protect their family the way they'd like to. If there was something, anything going on, that obviously the choice that was made to lock down the economy and to, to end all these jobs was the, probably the worst choice that could be made. It was like, how can we kill more people? That would have been, that would have been the, 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 the logical thing. Okay, we, people are dying from something. Um, how can we kill more people? Oh, let's end their let's end their employment. Let's let's cut off their source of income, so that they are at greater risk of dying from whatever could be killing them. Because if they had an income, then you know, well, the assumption behind the assumption, well, if you people are working, they're going to be spreading some contagion. I'm like, that's not that's not what I'm seeing. You see, because in my neighborhood, I'm seeing people working. I'm seeing big vans of Mexican construction workers coming in, and uh, I'm seeing all these different jobs. All these people are working all around me. It's just only a few jobs have been, not a few, but only certain businesses have been shut down. But I'm seeing people working all the time, and it didn't stop. It didn't stop liquor sales. It didn't stop drug sales. Drug sales just picked right up. It didn't stop any of the alternative economies. They just boomed after that. And again, as I said, I'm seeing construction workers just building, put up buildings left and right. You know, everybody, tons of people flying around, moving around. So there's, there was no lockdown in terms of trying to move, keep people from moving around the city or trying to contain some spread in that way. That, that, that just didn't happen. It just didn't happen. The, the only lockdown that did happen, uh, the only 
containing that did happen was, was people's ability to work and support themselves. That was seriously contained. And it created, uh, it created um, beggars out of able-bodied people. Um, and, uh, and that was my first impression of this. Uh, and then as time went on, I, of course, I didn't know what was going on. Still, I was hearing about this contagion and I was trying to figure out what it is, you know, and how it's working. I didn't, I didn't discount it. Um, and I began going to uh, the park uh, daily because I'd been out in nature all the time when I was in Australia. So I began going to Prospect Park because I was in walking distance from Prospect Park, which is a beautiful park, beautiful, big, beautiful park in Brooklyn. So I began going there every day because, uh, of course, all my work had been canceled. Here I was, not a single source of income. Uh, so there was nothing better to do than just go to the park and uh, be in with nature. And I got into the habit of, of singing with birds while I was in Australia. So I just brought this habit right back to Brooklyn with me and was in the park singing with birds every day. And really, it's a beautiful time to be in the park. It was spring. It was March, April, May, June. It was seeing all the flowers come in. And uh, we, we were still doing some things, music things, but the music things uh, suddenly got moved over to Zoom. And so Zoom became the avenue because they closed down all the venues. So all of us were thinking, okay, this is just going to be a couple of weeks because that was the, the understanding. We have to do this for two weeks, two or three weeks to, as they, the, the, the catch word was uh, flatten the curve. <laughs> And of course, none of that was making any sense to me. At this point, my skeptical uh, alarms were ringing very strongly because I began to question what was actually being flattened. There was seemed to be the only thing that was clearly being flattened to me was the economy, was people's ability to do for themselves. That was flattened. But I didn't, and I also thought that by flattening the economy, you was a good way to promote illness. It was a good way to make Ill, any illness more virulent and more easy to spread by flattening the economy. So uh, to me, these were the things that, that just sort of had me in a, a state of questioning. And so my state of questioning, uh, I began to make statements over social media uh, questioning this and I began to realize that uh, my statements were being uh, censored and being uh, uh, followed by trolls uh, who would comment negatively on uh, whatever I was saying that would question this. Uh, at one point, there was a uh, flyer that someone circulated on social media that said, let's, let's meet and protest the lockdown. We're going to have a protest of the lockdown. And that made total sense to me when I saw the flyer. I said, yeah, we, people, we need to be on the street protesting the lockdown because from what I'm seeing, the lockdown is the pandemic. Everything else is so-called, but the pandemic is this lockdown. The pandemic is this shutdown of people's ability to do for themselves. So I shared that flyer on social media. I was like, yeah, let's get up and let's protest. Well, when I shared it, I had people attacking me and calling me a terrorist, saying they were going to report me to various authorities. It was, uh, it was as if I had uh, done a post about, you know, some sort of terrorist attack. And uh, it, was, it was pretty interesting because after I made this share, and it wasn't I, made, I didn't write the post, I shared it. So after I had so many people attacking me, people writing me constantly, messaging me through my inbox, 
uh, organizing other friends to message me. There was such a constant string of, uh, of people attacking me over this simple sharing of a flyer to protest the lockdown that I had to just delete that flyer because I was not hearing the end of it. I was not hearing the end of it. It was, uh, and it was only wrapping up where friends of, they, these people, when they weren't friends of mine, but these people were calling other people to come on board and attack me. And so I withdrew it and I realized at that point that, and, and, and I began to pick up on some writings by um, David Katz, Dr. David Katz from the Yale School of Epidemiology and Pub Yale School of Public Health. And, uh, and he was writing about how this, lo this supposed lockdown should have been handled, how this, and he wrote about some very sensible ideas. And he was saying that this should have been a focused approach where they go to the most vulnerable, the senior citizens, and they protect them. But the most important thing is to allow the economy to keep going, to allow people who are healthy to keep going to work and keep their businesses going. Because if you lock down everybody, it's sort of like this. The analogy is this. There were forest fires in California back during that time. Huge fires in California. And there was, they, they had wanted to fight the fires. But by locking down a whole city or locking down a whole country, it's like taking your fire department and sending them all over the country to fight fires in California. So what you've done is you've spread out your resources to fight fires where you don't need to be fighting them. And they already knew at the time that young people and people, say, below the age of 70 were not at high risk. They knew that back way back in March. But yet they call a lockdown to fight a fire all over the country when they need to be fighting fires in California. And so I began to respond to that. I began to write essays and write poems. And the reason why I wrote poems particularly is because poems could escape the censorship and could escape trolls. Trolls would not attack me relentlessly over my poems, but I could say whatever I wanted to say. And censorship would not be, censorship would not be visited upon me in the same way because this was now a poem. It was art. So if, I, if they censored that, it would become really egregious looking. You know, oh, why would somebody censor that poem? Well, the, the poem I'm writing says exactly what I want to say. Very clearly, everybody gets the message and I get the message out. So I began uh, writing a lot of poems. I began, say, publishing a new poem on social media about every week. You know, I'd say right now I probably have over 50, 50 poems that uh, sort of describe uh, what the various sort of uh, uh, running record of this whole thing from all the way back in March, uh, describing clearly how I was responding, how I felt about it, and how a lot of other people felt about it too, because a lot of people were agreeing with what I was saying in the poetry. It was not the mainstream narrative, though, but a lot of people agreed with me. So this is this I'm sort of telling you now where I was going through spring leading into the summer. And in the summer, a lot of things happened or the spring, rather late spring. As you know, there was a big uh, movement because George Floyd was killed uh, during that time. And so that sparked off a huge Black Lives Matter movement. And um, of course, there's two sides of that that people would have to understand about the whole response to uh, George Floyd. One of the things that people really don't see in a large way is that in the black community, when you say Black Lives Matter, it's just a phrase. It, it's not an organization. It's just a phrase. 
It's, it's not a political organization. It's not a protest organization. It's not a group of people. When you say Black Lives Matter in the black neighborhood, you just said a, you just said a phrase that everybody relates to. Everybody agrees because everybody has personally seen uh, the heavy hand of policing. But when you say Black Lives Matter in other areas, in other neighborhoods, it oftentimes means a political organization that is doing work. And I saw it clearly. So it was very interesting because uh, it was a time period in which there were a lot of big protests right in the middle of when this so-called pandemic was so-called, meaning that everybody was supposed to be standing 20 feet away from each other and in their houses. You know, suddenly there's huge protests and these huge protests were somehow or another getting state support or state in a way some sort of like pass or sanction. You know, like, oh, these are fine. You know, these are okay. Of course, there was some problem because police, some police were injured. Police were injured not by not by anybody from the Black Hood. Uh, a lot of these police were injured by people who came from upstate. And um, through little, you know, mild-toe cocktails or things like that at the police. So, you know, these these weird sort of ironic things were going on the whole time uh, that sort of, again, opened up that skeptical thing in my head to sort of say, what are we looking at? What is going on here? And what part of this is real and what part of this is false? Because according to the narrative, during this time period, the Black Lives Matter protests, well, there should have been bodies in the street. There should have been, the, the streets should have been lined with bodies because you had all these people out protesting, marching down the street. Um, or should I say the hospitals should have been so overrun that, that they had just collapsed. They, they would have, the whole medical system just collapsed from, from hundreds of protests. This is the logical, logical result if there was what they said there was. And of course, nobody was seeing bodies in the street. Nobody anywhere was seeing bodies in the street. There are people who, of course, were caught up in the news cycle. And the news cycle was literally projecting these images to you over the TV. So that if you were caught up in the news cycle, your inner subconscious mind was, was projecting that to you from just from your TV exposure. So anyway, uh, that, that sort of leads me into the summer of, uh, of how I was experiencing this pandemic or so-called pandemic. And then at a certain point, I realized after the censorship I, that I began to, I really needed to, to listen and to hear more about what scientists are saying. And I began to pick up some of the messages coming from um, Judy Mikovits. For some reason or another, I found her and I found her message. And there was something, you know, I want to tell people that doctors and scientists are found who can who are saying any number of things, they all contradict each other, basically. Um, so when you listen to a doctor of sciences, it's not so much what they're saying that counts, but what they're saying in relation to your experience that counts. You know, what is your experience? How does it relate to what that doctor of scientists is saying? Because ultimately, you have to create the world you live in. So you have to shape this, this information they give you, and you have to interpret it, and you have to use it. If you can't shape it, interpret it, use it yourself, then what good is it? What good are, is, your, is your job here on this planet? So I'm listening to what Judy McPherson is saying, and she's, she is ringing the bells in my head. You know, I'm saying this lady is, is saying something that follows and checks my experience. It, my experience is, is resonating with what she was saying. 
And then before I could do anything, I looked, I Googled Judy McPhist and I could see that she was uh, a bit of a pariah. She was an outcast that everything, every site on the internet said that she was a liar and a criminal and blah, blah, blah. So I began to wonder about that. I'm like, like, why is, why is I, why do I resonate with everything she's saying? But then everything on the internet is saying that she is see some sort of outrageous criminal. So uh, I began to talk to other doctors and other scientists who I respected very much and ask them what they felt about Judy Mikovits. And do you know what I was hearing back from people? I heard people saying that she is a good person, that she's right, that she is really uh, saying a lot of important things and that she needs to have a broader base of exposure. People need to really hear what she's saying. I was get, getting that from the doctors and scientists that I respected the most. They were telling me that about Mikovits. So I turned back to Mikovits's uh, statements and videos and writings. I turned back and looked at them again because I was getting ready to dismiss what she was saying after I saw how she'd been berated over the internet. I began to dismiss her. And then I looked back on her after I, after all these doctors who I really respected basically said that she is a good person and that she is telling the truth. So I went back to listen to her. And again, what she was saying opened up a world of information to me that I began to follow. And the more I began to follow and listen to other scientists and doctors who were explaining a lot of what she had explained, but actually explaining some things even more in-depth, more detailed. Uh, more recently, I've been very interested in what Professor Dolores Cahill is saying, because Professor Dolores Cahill is saying some really, really crucial information that everyone needs to hear to understand what's going on. And again, all of these really great minds are being censored. Uh, they're being censored. They're, they're, whatever they're saying is being erased, expunged off the internet. You, a lot of times you can't find it or hear it uh, on any of the major tech platforms. So you have to go on the other alternative tech platforms to find anything they're saying. So I have a lot more to say, but I'm going to take a break here and just say, uh, because I don't want to ramble on forever. But at this point, like I said, there's, there's some, the, the latest statement that I'm most interested in that I think everybody should be very interested in has been the statement that Dolores Cahill made a couple of weeks ago on a video that was quickly censored in which she said that they had decided to go and sequence PCR tests for people who had shown to be somehow another COVID positive. She, they'd gone and sequenced all these tests to sequence what they actually had. They went over several hundred uh, cases and sequenced them. And, uh, and they found that as they, were as they were going to sequence all these COVID positive people, the numbers were growing. They had 15, the majority of them, 1,500 out of, you know, a little slightly higher number, 1,500 of the cases they had sequenced were influenza A and B. What this was showing was that a great deal of what is flagging this PCR test, a lot of it is influenza A and B, which has been around for a while, but it's flagging as, as uh, the, the PCR test as something called COVID. Uh, and there are other things that people are, other respiratory viruses, whatever that people are picking up that are flagging it. Uh, but the, because of course this thing they're calling COVID has never been isolated. So there's no way of matching it ounce for ounce with something that somebody has. They are, they're able to sort of fudge this 
this PCR of saying, well, you know, anything could be this, anything could be COVID. So what it drew up when Cahill started talking about this, she said, well, what we need to do is to, we need to have the legal and medical community to work together to bring the doctors to trial. The doctors need to go to trial for misdiagnosis. If they diagnose something as COVID when it's actually, when, when you sequence it and it comes up to be influenza A or influenza B, if they do that, they should, they should be held responsible for misdiagnosis. And there's a major, that's a major crime for a doctor to misdiagnose, to, to knowingly misdiagnose a, an illness. Uh, because of course people die from misdiagnosis. They die from that all the time. Then they treat it the wrong way. They get the wrong treatment. So, uh, of course, one could argue that, you know, that a lot of the lives that have been lost over the last few months have been lost for over missed diagnosis and wrong treatment. Wrong treatment for what these people who've had some sort of respiratory problem, what they've suffered from has been misdiagnosed and treated incorrectly. And uh, so that's been uh, a big issue. And Dolores Cahill brought that up. And when she mentioned all those things, I think that was the thing that caused her so much massive censorship that uh, it got quickly wiped off YouTube. It's hard to find it on any site, um, but you can you can find it if you look hard enough. I would argue here that maybe it's not the doctors, but the manufacturers of the tests or the ones who approve those tests, because theoretically, if the assumption in the society is that this test works, you know, it diagnoses this thing, it, whether it does or it doesn't, then the doctor within the system uses it. So... I'm just look, look, looking at it logically. I'm thinking almost it, it should not be the doctors, perhaps, but the manufacturers and the FDA and whoever actually approved those tests. Yeah, actually, I'm, I'm sorry because Cahill actually does say that in her statement. In other words, she does say it has to be the whole team involved. It has to be the doctors to the manufacturers to the officials to the government officials. All those people who are in that line of responsibility to lead to that misdiagnosis because there's a chain of, there's a whole team involved, but they lead to that misdiagnosis. So all those people need to be put on trial because right going all, all the way back to the manufacturers, all the way back to even the CDC and the WHO, who, who recommend these protocols, recommend this approach. They all need to have their feet held to the fire because everybody had to give a pass. Everybody had to say okay when something was really not okay. And all those people who said okay, they all need to be put on trial. Because if at the end of the day, you take a sequence of something where somebody's flagged as COVID-19, you take and you sequence and you say, no, this is clearly influenza A, then we have to track down every person who allowed this thing to happen. Because that's, the, that's what's killing people. What's killing people is whatever it is, they, it's not being diagnosed properly and it's not being treated properly. So in the meantime, too, the other thing, that's, the other process is going on is there's been all these treatments that are available to people that work. You know, of course, hydroxy, then there's uh, ivermectin, you know, all these other treatments, some other treatments, plenty of others, I can't name them all, that are being silenced, banned, and moved out of the menu so that no one can ever think that this is a way for them to use or a protocol for them to use should they be experiencing any respiratory illness through this time. And that is a big crime because a lot of these other alternative treatments work very well. In fact, it's uh, this ivermectin treatment works better than the, has a better study success 
than even the so-called vaccine, which is not a vaccine at all. So why would the ivermectin be off the map, moved, moved off the radar? Anyway, that was a long story to get to here. No, that, that, that was a very good story. And, uh, well, uh, my evolution was somewhat similar. And what, what, what I want to focus on, what's on my mind heavily, is that what we talked about as the role of the artist. Because, see, I grew up, well, I grew up in a different culture. I grew up in Moscow. And the cultural concept was that the artist is the person who speaks the truth, and that's the whole point. Yes. And uh, I guess that was extremely important you know, in the Soviet environment. And in the American culture, once I moved here, I realized that the rebellion was kind of fake. I mean, not fake, fake, but if there's nothing, the pop rebels, their life was not necessarily bad, but it was a, not a pose, because if your life is good and comfortable, you know, like, God bless, it's, it's wonderful, but then there's no rebellion, really. But all of a sudden, right now, actual dissent became a thing that is authentic. And again, it's killing me to see how many artists just accept the establishment narrative and even yell at the ones who don't accept it or even think. Because any honest conclusion one has, whichever it is, whether it's pro-establishment, against establishment or any kind of cocktail, you would think that it should be okay to discuss it like as human beings. Right. Like say, okay, I could be right, I could be wrong, I may change my opinion tomorrow if there's something else, but let's talk about it. That seems like a normal format, like the only format we have as human beings. And that becomes unavailable and censored. Right. And that in itself is a bad sign, because science as a method is a beautiful thing, as we all know. It's just, okay, you look at facts, you see whether your theory checks with the facts, and then you proceed from there. But now science is whatever the television says and that's not good at all it's just a bad sign it's just you know bad bad vibes it's not right she's not right as I, as I always tell people science is a process that involves debate and in a way you could say science is debate and if you take the debate out of science then it's not science anymore it's not science you know all these things that we consider a done deal are not a done deal in science nobody had gravity is not a done deal in, in the world of science nobody no scientists will say they believe in gravity nobody <laughs> they will tell you that that there's this theory that there's something called gravity and that we are still trying to investigate that because we may find out that that's not what's going on at all no, they're the world definitely mysterious. And even oil well, scientists, they discover new things every day. And obviously, science is not the only way to go about knowledge. But every day, they discover something. And if they're honest, then the theory of yesterday is no longer really explaining things well. And that's a normal process, right? Right, right. And every scientist knows that's what's going on, you know. But for some reason or other, uh, this, uh, the, there's this, this idea that's been, you know, floated out there in the mainstream for public that, Science is this factual data that has to be adhered to. Otherwise, you know, people are not believing in science. You know, there's nothing more ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> well, believing in science is it's, it's such a wonderful soundbite. <laughs> right. <laughs> As I say, there's no, there's, no, there's no scientist who believes in science. That's definitely true. <laughs> yeah, and even in peaceful times, without any censorship, you can take two honest scientists who have the opposite explanations for the same thing, and they both mean it. And right. like, it's always about the debate, and time decides. And sometimes the joke of today is the genius of tomorrow and the other way around. So. Right, absolutely. 
But coming back, because what's on my mind a lot is how to overcome divide and conquer, because it seems like throughout history, that's what people with bad intentions use, and they pit people against each other. And now, of course, it's popular. Everybody's divided along about every line, whether it's like the pigment in in the skin, or whether it's the idea, or left or right, or maskers, anti-maskers, like the whole idea of even arguing about a piece of cloth on your face. It's so strange in a normal world but but it's almost like i'm thinking uh, how we overcome that divide and conquer and how to i don't know validate normal conversation again or it seems like it's the most important task because facts if people believe in something in an addiction manner then facts don't get through and it's about the feeling and it's about being validated without being that attached to this idea or another Yes. And uh, I suspect that artists actually play a very significant historical role right now. So what do you think? Well, I totally agree that artists will have to step forward. They will have to take the ball in this situation. Why? Because almost every factor of our society is under such heavy, heavy control and uh, censorship. And for the science and medicine field, there is so much surveillance over what scientists and doctors say at this point that the minute they begin to try to open up a very lively debate, then there's so much surveillance over what they're saying that if one of them goes off the mainstream narrative, then there's a whole crew of uh, institutions ready to attack. And artists at this point, we're 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 a little free of that still you know we do, we don't have tons of organizations just ready to swoop on us and uh and 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 shut down and i'm telling you it's, it's very serious when i'm talking about it's as serious as organizations that will come shut down your income they'll shut down your bank accounts they'll shut down your communication they will do that if you are in the uh, science and medicine field or if you're in the legal field if you're in any of these fields that they are that that have that may have some uh what they feel is probably some real hold or some real ability to pull the purse strings in this situation well for some reason or other they are not really attacking artists able to attack artists in this way i imagine unless you have unless you have a really great artistic contract you know those those artists who are have done really well for themselves well those are the ones i kind of feel sorry for the most right because they cannot open their mouths if they open their mouths and say the wrong thing then their contracts are dissolved and they go from a million, couple million dollars a year to a couple dollars a year in a, in a, within, a, within a, a heartbeat of time. So um, the when I so the artists I'm talking about are the grassroots artists. The grassroots artists are the ones who who have to really carry the ball through this time, and and we have to be inventive because of course that's one of the things that's been uh, the venues have been shut down so we're going to have to use everything we have to create venues to create avenues to create ways of getting to people of ways of sending this message out ways of reflecting the truth and magnifying the truth it's going to be on artists to have to do a lot of this work now it's well it's on everybody it really is on everybody but this is a time for artists to reach across boundaries and come together. It's amazing. I I say things every day that people attack me and say, "Well, you must have been a Trump supporter." And 
I'm saying, me, uh, I don't really know anything about Trump. You know, I have not for ever in my day uh, supported or carried water for Trump. But if I'm saying this and I believe in it, and if it happens to align at the same time with somebody who's a Trump supporter, well, then that is something that unifies us, you know, because if I'm walking somewhere and uh, one of the scariest things I've ever seen to me, you know, last year was to walk through a whole block of area where I saw flag, American flags and Trump signs on everybody's lawn. I was scared. I was really afraid for my life. But, you know, suddenly I realized if those people, if those people believe what I do about this so-called pandemic, about this narrative, if they believe what I believe, then we can come together. I have no fear about walking down that block anymore. And that's very powerful. Because if suddenly we realize that all these people who may have had a reason to think that they were divided, that they were not able to come together, they were uh, never going to be able to see eye to eye, suddenly we can see that we do see eye to eye. We do agree that we do agree on our civil liberties. We do agree on our freedoms. We do want to see those restored. And uh, if, you know, I, I was at a protest a couple months ago where I was locked arms in arms with Hasidic Jews from the Hasidic community. Now, do you know how crazy that would have seemed to me three years ago? If somebody said, if somebody told me three years ago, you're going to be in protest locking arms with Hasidic Jews, I would look to them and say, you're absolutely crazy. That's never going to happen. And the reason why I said I would have said that is because the, the relationship of the communities I was in to Hasidic Jewish communities was never a good relationship. It was never a friendly relationship. It was never one where we were talking to each other and um, intermingling, integrating, you know, it was always one where we were, they were in their house only talking to their friends and we were talking to our community and should we even reach over and say hi to them, you know, that was not going to be you know, responded to very well. Um, so three years ago, that I would have looked at anybody crazy if they said, you're going to be locking arms with a city Jews. Here I was locking arms only uh, about a month ago, locking arms at a protest with a city Jews, looking them eye to eye, talking about how much we agree on the problems with this pandemic narrative and what it's doing to our communities. And so with this kind of ability for people to come together based on the things that we all know that we want as civil liberties, as human rights, as the rights for our families, the rights for our children, the rights for our communities, our schools. If we all see that we are all in that much agreement, then this is an immense opportunity for unity right now. This is a huge opportunity for unity that we, we've got to use, and artists particularly are important to lead that charge. And I'll say again, grassroots artists are important particularly to lead that charge, to lead the outreach, to lead the unity, and to lead the, to, to bring the message forward, unafraid to, to bring that message forward in as boldly as possible. I agree with you. And I think it's not a coincidence at all, at least based on my observations, that at a time where everybody could and should be uniting against the totalitarian techno-fascism kind of situation, it is exactly the time where various demographic and ethnical divisions are being really amplified 
where it's almost like it's impossible for people officially to talk across the demographic lines because then immediately like you're not this you're not supposed to say that or the other way around and I do not think it's a coincidence at all and I am thinking almost it's whoever individual feels the stronger and having more love it's almost the responsibility to be trying to connect and to be trying to be understanding and just do the human thing because I think that's all we can do like realistically being doing a human thing is all we can do because the rest is in the hands of the universe true true yeah I'm I'm gonna tell you another story I had I've been seeing I don't follow the news but every once in a while I look at the news and I see some report about the attack on the uh, the attack on Washington DC what is it the <laughs> Resurrection or oh, insurrection? Yeah, yes. insurrection, insurrection <laughs> at the state capitol, um, and that we have to hold these people accountable. And that now they want to impeach, you know, Donald Trump for this attack and these people killed. Well, you know, I had several friends. I was supposed to be there myself. They invited me. You know, they come on to DC and hang out with us. I was like, well, I have to be here for because there's certain things going on in New York that I need to be here for. But I'm with you in spirit. So I was communicating with them during the day, calling them. It was a peaceful day. It was a peaceful day with millions of people singing songs. As my friend said, you know, Michael Jackson music blasting out, everybody having good time, smiling. But what it, what had been done was what uh, could be described as a setup. And so the setup is they had opened up the uh, Capitol building and built ramps up to the rooms and opened up a lot of the offices. And they put in a couple uh, operative groups who would go in and uh, fight with the people or start fights. And uh, even some of the op operative groups, I imagine, were armed, you know, and had guns. Um, so a couple operative groups came in to start trouble. And, and they started trouble among, among a lot of their own factions. And, uh, and that, this whole, this whole day, which literally was a love fest of people in Washington, D.C. The most friendly people I know of, warm people were there in D.C. and they were sending pictures to me of them having so much fun talking to people. And then uh, I'm seeing these news reports that sound like uh, a whole gang of people came in and attacked the place. And that was not at all what happened. And obviously, oh, oh, the other thing is true is that uh, is they built ramps all up in the state capitol building and the press, the press got up in early in the morning, maybe from late last night and camped out at the state capitol building with their cameras ready. So they were there to get a story and somebody had scripted that story already. Um, so it was probably very much well planned even in advance that somebody would come in and start shooting somebody and there would be some stabbings or something. This was probably all worked out in advance. Um, and so oh, the groups of people that would be involved in it were probably already lined up to get involved in it way in advance. The press was there. They were camped out in advance. They had opened up the state capitol. They'd opened up offices so people could walk in. So to give the appearance that they had broken into offices and they um, walked up uh, areas they weren't supposed to walk up to. No, no. The, these were ramps that were already put in place. Lighting was put in so that people would feel comfortable about walking into these areas. So um, all this this setup was done to to basically make an event that was such a, a beautiful day for people in Washington D.C. appear to be this huge 
attack, this huge insurrection. And so this is a, this is one of the, the things that is being used to divide people is this whole concept that there was uh, that there was this insurrection by these whatever nationalists, terrorists, you know, they're being painted as white nationalists and terrorists and Ku Klux Klan and all these people. And that was not who was there. That was not who these people were, you know. And, uh, I, you know, I imagine anybody who hears me say this, any of my friends would say, oh, well, you know, would call me a Trump supporter. And I'm not a Trump supporter. I'm just telling you what was, what was really going on. I'm telling you who was there. <laughs> I mean, I, I hear you. I, that, that was such a weird thing. And it's it's entirely possible that, like in any kind of circumstance, if somebody was trying to incite then a bunch of people who were just in the mood, they would go in. I mean, that's how things usually go, right? In that kind right. of situation. But the fact that, I, mean, I was telling everybody that, imagine that like we are the most powerful military country in the world, right? And we have the biggest budget of all. And people just walked in there. I mean, they just, how is it even possible? That doesn't make any sense at all. It just doesn't make sense at all. And there you go. There you go. In other words, how does that story fly? (laughs) Exactly. And then a number of people who are extremely wonderful and lovable and educated and intelligent, but they were all heartbroken about the fact that those horrible Trump supporters attacked the sacred Even though, I mean, I would imagine that a few months before that, if that same action in whichever format was conducted to get Trump out of there, they would probably have been happy, which is like another thing that that's an entirely different kind of warmth. But just the fact that it was so hard to believe if you just look at it logically. And at the same time, it was a heartbreaking emotional event for so many people. And they were just heartbroken and they stayed heartbroken and they're still heartbroken that this thing could happen in the States. It is so, so, so interesting. I mean, not interesting, tragic, but... Yeah, tragic. it's a tragic place, case of divide and conquer because here's an opportunity for people to be coming together over what really what they were there in D.C., what the, what the millions of people there in D.C. were there for. And they were there for election integrity. They were there to talk about civil rights and freedoms and civil liberties. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. They were, they were there to talk about the things that everybody wants and uh, to, for them to sort of recreate that whole story and create a new narrative out of it is uh it's just it's really a, a very difficult thing to watch you know especially again you know, like i said the artist is supposed to be looking at these things and saying but is that what i see you know and of course a lot of my friends who are artists they're railing about the insurrection at the state capitol but none of them were there none of them were there none of them even had friends there they were just watching the news they were watching the the reports on the news and and i guess you know people i don't know how they unlearned this but news reports can sh- make anything look like anything they can take anything and make it look like just the opposite you know the news is quite good at that artists used to know that i don't know why artists have seemed to have forgotten that now Well, the artists have been seduced. I think the whole idea that the artist's happiness is in validation by others, which is a very different concept from like having the love of the community because it's all working together naturally, two different things. But if you really disrespect people in society on the deep level and then ask them to seek that respect through validation and exposure and fame, then I guess it's really easy to seduce, especially somebody younger. So, I mean, I don't 
necessarily I don't blame anybody. It's a tragic situation. It's like being an abuse victim and being in denial. But you know, as far as the reaction to the capital, one of the most tragic things that I've heard related to that was that women would go on dating apps and pretend to be conservatives to trap those men in Washington and report them to authorities. And I thought that was just the lowest of the low of the low of the low of the low because that is like in a completely different area. This is like human relationships and you go and you give it to the state which is the ultimate betrayal of everything. And when that story broke, then everybody was actually applauding. Like there was, I almost didn't see opinions where people would go, oh my God, this is so horrible. Everybody was like, yay, this is so genius. And my, my brain was boiling. So very, very strange. Yeah, that's, that's strange. That is, it's, it's uh, wow, yeah. And anyway, th- th- there's so many things to talk about. I think, well, you, we've talked about a lot and I really appreciate your time and this conversation. So once again, I thank you. And maybe, you know, maybe we'll do it again, like as more events happen. But I think it's really important to have this conversation. And thank you. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoy having this opportunity. I really appreciate, if we say, I, I use the word appreciate love. I, I really appreciate love the opportunity to have this conversation and look forward to the next one.